That Sober Guy podcast contains adult content, merciless truth, and emotional nudity. Listener discretion is advised. I'm Shane Raymer. You're listening to That Sober Guy podcast, and we help people stay sober. If it's your first time listening, welcome. I'm so glad you're here today. Good to be back with you. We've got a great guest for you today. And if you've been a longtime listener, once again, always thank you so much for supporting the platform. You're such a big part of my sobriety and just trying to be a better dad, husband, dude, friend, all that stuff. So thank you so much. Our guest today is Dr. Joseph R. Volpicelli. And uh, Dr. Volpicelli is a professor of psychiatry at the University of Pennsylvania. He's the founder of the Volpicelli Center in Plymouth Meeting, Pennsylvania, uh, and executive director of the Institute of Addiction Medicine. Uh, Some of his research led to the discovery of naltrexone, I know many people are familiar with that, um, uh, to treat alcohol addiction, uh, an FDA-approved medicine. It's also used worldwide to reduce alcohol cravings and relapse, and we'll talk more about that. And we'll get to meet Dr. Volpicelli in just a minute, but before we do that, be sure to check us out at thatsoberguy.com. You can follow us on Instagram, at thatsoberguypodcast. And then uh, one of of my favorite places to connect, um, especially for my dudes out there, uh, you can join us on our Sober Guy Locals community. It's kind of like Instagram meets Patreon. You can help support us there, but you can also just be there and be part of a growing sober community that's safe. It's going to help you stay accountable. You're going to have some fun in the process. Um, I think we just cleared over 300 active members in there, and so we got a lot of good people in there. I just want to encourage you, if, you, if you'd love to join right now, we'd love to have you. You can download the Locals app, or you can go to that soberguypodcast.locals. Uh, dot com and we'll put all the links from uh, from today's podcast in the show notes so it's very easy for you to find. Uh, so uh, let's see, Doctor Volpicelli is here. Um, we're going to talk about some interesting topics today. So I guess even for some people, you could say this is a controversial topic depending on how you look at your recovery, how you look at your sobriety. Uh, the title is "Can Some People Moderate Their Drinking?" And uh, I've been excited to talk about this uh, topic for a while. So it's really great to have Doctor Volpicelli on, uh, sir. It's great to see you. Great to meet you. And thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So let's, I, I gave a brief um, description, a brief bio of you. It's obviously your bio is much more extensive than that. You've been doing this for a long time. Maybe just give uh, those out there listening a little bit more, a um, uh, little more uh, in-depth bio about yourself and how you got into this work. Yeah. So I've been involved with uh, <clears throat> trying to understand and treat addictions for 40 years now. And I got my start when I was a medical student and I was at the Philadelphia VA hospital And I was working with a patient who was a Vietnam vet. So while he was uh, in Vietnam, he used opioids. But when he came back to the United States, instead of using heroin, he switched over to alcohol. And he developed symptoms of PTSD and alcohol addiction. And I was really interested in trying to treat that and understand it. At the time, I was also a part of the medical scientist training program. So I was also uh, learning to get my PhD in psychology, and I was doing research with rats to understand the relationship between stress and diseases. Mm. And so I decided to develop an animal model of alcohol addiction. When you, when you said the rats, you reminded me of Rat Park. I'm sure you've heard of that. Um, yes. by, I think, well, the, at least the first person I saw talk about that was, I think his name is Johan Yari, did a TEDx on it. Um, and that is where uh, they put 
they they isolated a rat right and they gave mm-hmm. it they gave it heroin water or, or water laced with heroin and it became addicted and then they they put a community of rats together with all kinds of other stuff going on they put the same water out there but the rats who were in community chose the regular water is that is that kind of accurate i think from the way i remember yeah that that, that was the experiment as it, as it was reported yes as as it was reported i love how that is oh yeah that's a, <laughs> that's an important part of that so can you so that just came to mind for me. What can you dive into a little bit more about the the research that you did in pertaining to rats and what that looked like? Or yeah, sure. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so at the time, I was doing research to look at how exposure to stress causes diseases. So, for example, we did an experiment where we gave rats uh, inescapable electric foot shock and then injected them with cancer cells, and we found that the rats that had the stress had a much higher death rate from the cancer. Now, what was interesting about our research, and I did this with uh, Marty Sullivan, was we found that it wasn't the pain of the electric shock that caused the stress. It was the ability to control the stress or not. So the rats that had control over the stress, they could turn it off. They actually had less incidence of cancers than rats who didn't who received no shock at all. Mm. And so that helped actually protect them a bit. So it's a psychological concept of lack of control. So let me ask you this then, and my wife and I have this conversation often, or it's came up um, with regard to health and, and just in, in general getting sick, right? Mm-hmm. Would it be fair to say that our minds are extremely powerful and that we can manifest certain sicknesses, diseases, certain things um, with the amount of stress we're under possibly, or the amount of fear or the amount, all those different emotions that go through us that can manifest these physical things that come onto us afterwards. Does that make sense? Is that possible? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I've always been interested in the relationship between psychology and behavior and biology. Yeah. And what was interesting for me is that it wasn't so much the physical stressor that caused the rats to show the signs of stress, but it was the ability to control it or not. And, um, that leads to a variety of disorders. For example, at the time we were looking at how lack of control leads to depression in rat models. Mm. And uh, so at the time I said, I wanted to see how that applies to looking at alcohol. So I developed a, a rat model, an animal model to look at alcohol drinking. So what did that look like? So what was interesting is um, that the rats that received the uh, uncontrollable shock, they drank more alcohol than the rats that received controllable shock. But What was surprising is, and I think uh, Isaac Asimov said, uh, uh, science proceeds not so much by eureka, but wow, that's funny. And I had my, wow, that's funny moment when I found that the rats that increased their alcohol drinking did so on the weekends when I wasn't giving them the stress. So when I was doing the study, I wanted to take the weekends off because I was a graduate student and I didn't feel like going in and shocking the rats every day. And when I measured how much alcohol they drank during the days where they received the, the shock, there was no difference between the inescapably and escapably shocked rats. But on the weekends, when I gave them the weekend off, that's when there was a big rebound in alcohol drinking. So that was surprising to me. So I tried to understand why that occurs. So what can you, why would that? So let, let me just give you my first thing. When I first saw yes, you sure. say that, I'm like, damn, these rats are, 
man, they had a rough week. They had a long week. They were, you know, they, they were under some stress, man. They, you know, they were living life, doing their thing. And on the weekend, they finally got to relax and they wanted to just escape and just be intoxicated and feel better about themselves. You know, that's like yeah, the first yeah. thing from like a, you know, high level uh, look at this, you know, something. What, what did you find with that? Yeah. So what I did was I looked back at the biology of stress. So most people are aware of the fight or flight response where you sure. get stressed and the adrenergic nervous system fires and, and you just feel like running away or attacking someone. But that's only part of the stress response. The other part is the body releases endogenous opiates, endorphins. Yeah. And that kicks in a little bit later. And so what I reasoned was that when the rats receive the inescapable shock, the body released these endogenous opioids and they got a little bit of a high from that. And then on the weekends, when they didn't get the shock, they went through the equivalent of withdrawal from their own endogenous wow. opiates. Wow. And what the alcohol could do, and research at the time showed that it did this, and for some rats, it could stimulate the release of endorphins. So the alcohol helped compensate for the endorphins. And that helped me understand my patient who, when he came back from Vietnam, he didn't have the opiates anymore. He wasn't using heroin. So he turned to alcohol as a way to compensate for the fact that he didn't have his endorphin stimulated. Wow. Wow. That's super interesting. So you're basically just trading off one for the other. This It's almost like the substance is somewhat irrelevant. It's more about trying to compensate for those endorphins and those that high or that feeling that you get, whether it's to escape or whatever it is, how would, so with regard to your patient that came back from Vietnam, how does trauma tie into all this? Or let's say PTSD, yeah. is that a, like how I'm, I'm sure that has to play some role in some of this and even wanting to escape or get high or drink. Absolutely. So it's interesting when I talk with my patient, um, I believe the trauma elicited endogenous opiates for him. Mm. And when he didn't have the trauma anymore, he turned to things like alcohol to get his endorphin system going. And, and when I say endorphin system, the endorphins also stimulate dopamine for some people so that it actually produced a little bit of a high. What was interesting for my patient is that I noticed when he was in group therapy talking about his experience in Vietnam, so it was a very stressful group encounter, yeah. he actually began to feel better. And so he, he often would turn to stress as a way of actually feeling a little bit better. And when he didn't have stress in his life, when he came back to the United States, he felt incredibly bored and blank and life didn't have any meaning for him. And so he would enjoy getting together with some of his old buddies to sort of re-expose himself to the stress. Yeah. So I guess it's almost like he, you assume this identity, you assume um, this way of living life too, and you're under constant stress. I mean, it's gotta be, uh, I don't know. I've never been to war. I've never been in that. And so I don't know firsthand, but I can only imagine it is highly intense and you're constantly on, on edge. Um, and then, like you said, you come back to the States and I think boredom, like I have, I have a buddy of mine the other day who he's, I think he's, uh, he's just hit 30 days sober. And he said boredom was the biggest thing. And we had Aubrey Huff on the podcast actually too, a few, few weeks ago. And he said the same thing. Boredom was like the one thing that they kept going back to that would make people uh, relapse or keep turning to that. Um, yeah, and, and so, oh, yeah. go, no, go ahead, please go ahead. Yeah. So the thesis is that when people are bored or they just feel like sitting on the couch and eating yeah. potato chips, yeah. they're actually going through withdrawal from stress. Yeah. And that's related to what's going on with the endorphin system. The endorphin system is low. The dopamine system is low. And that's when people are at particular risk for using alcohol or engaging in some other 
behavior to get those endorphins going again. Okay, so I, ju- I just caught something. And I, man, this is awesome because I'm, I'm kind of learning and thinking as you're explaining this too. So, and now, dang it, I forgot how you, how you said it. So I'm, I'm going to try to paraphrase here. But basically what you, what I heard you just say is that the stress, you're, you're actually suffering from stress in some cases, a stress withdrawal versus a withdrawal from potential alcohol. And that's not, I'm not saying that people aren't physically addicted to alcohol because I saw that firsthand when I went to treatment myself, I was in a detox room. I saw men in there literally physically withdrawing sick, that kind of stuff. But at the same time, there could be a difference in withdrawing, um, from, from stress. Is that kind of what you're saying? That's right. So there's going to be common elements between withdrawal from stress, withdrawal from alcohol and withdrawal from opiates. Got it. Okay. And, and a person can learn to compensate one for the other. Okay. Okay. All right. So how do we, how do we deal with this? Yeah. <laughs> so, so, yeah. <laughs> so I reasoned that if I blocked the opiate receptors with naltrexone, then the rats would not want to drink alcohol after the stress. I did the experiment and sure enough, that's exactly what happened. So that's when I actually had the eureka moment that it actually worked out exactly as I would have predicted. Got it. Got it. So, so as you know, as your research goes and your work goes, where did that kind of go from there? Just on a, on a personal note for you. Yeah. So I I graduated from medical school, received my PhD, went on, did my residency. And then toward the end of my residency, I started an experiment to use naltrexone to treat alcohol addiction in those veterans again. So I went back to the Philadelphia VA, we did a study and actually we published a study in 1992 and and, uh, the the results came out where it showed that naltrexone reduced the relapse rates in half and naltrexone went on to receive FDA approval in 1994. And uh, we have a really effective treatment for alcohol addiction. Has there been any downsides to naltrexone? And I don't, I don't, I don't know a whole lot about it personally. I've never used it. Um, I know I've talked to a lot of people who have. Um, what, what's your take on the pros and cons yeah, of so, it? So after I did the original study, I looked to see who it was helpful for, who it didn't help, and I found the biggest problem with naltrexone is people weren't were not taking it consistently. So people might take it during the week, but they wanted to get the alcohol high on the weekend, so you would stop taking it. So it turns out a critical factor in its effectiveness is to get people to take it consistently. And so then I developed a psychosocial program to help motivate people to want to stay on the medicine and stay in treatment and and recover. So how how long would somebody need to stay on that? Obviously, it's, is it a forever thing? I mean, is it three months? I mean, is it just differentiate between the person? Yeah, so it sort of depends on the individual, but I did do a study where I compared people who took it for just three months versus people who took it for nine months, Mm. and the people who took it nine months had a better outcome. So when the people stopped the naltrexone, a fair percent of them went back to drinking. So my recommendation now is to stay on it for one year. Got it. So before we started today, and I just want to kind of preface this before I ask this next question for you. You know, to those out there listening, a lot of people who listen to the show, who love the show, um, I say this often, we're open to discussing all new avenues, all new ways, different topics. Like that's so important to be able to critically think, to examine, to look at experience, science, all these different things. And then for all of us, 
we have different experiences in how we got sober, how we stay sober. Everyone's different. Some that might work for me doesn't work for you and down the line. So the question would be uh, for you, Dr. Uh, Volpicelli, is why, why do some things work like 12 step for certain people and mm-hmm. some don't? Why do some things like naltrexone work for some people and maybe they don't? Is it just difference of person or what, what's your take on that? Yeah, I'll give you a couple sort of uh, rules of thumb that naltrexone seems to work best for those people who, when they start drinking, they have a hard time stopping. So after three drinks, they'll report that they have increased energy. They, they want to have that fourth drink. Um, uh, that their craving actually increases the more they drink. So uh, for some people, uh, one drink turns into five drinks right away. So they tend to be binge drinkers. And they also tend to have a strong family history for alcohol problems. When someone comes to me with that sort of history, I know that they'll be good responders to naltrexone. But there's a variety of different paths to get to alcohol addiction. Some people, I think, use alcohol because they want that endorphin dopamine effect. Yeah. And other people use alcohol as a way of um, sedating themselves, as a way of reducing uh, anxiety or to, um, uh, to help with sleep, that sort of thing. And they get to addiction through a, a different pathway. They might start slowly with one or two drinks. Some people, like yeah. during the pandemic, started drinking a little bit uh, to help cope with the isolation and the loneliness. And they find that they're beginning to take more and more. So besides alcohol's effects in terms of stimulating endorphins, it also has other effects to calm down nerves. Yeah. But the body compensates for that as well. And so over time, the excitatory neurotransmitters compensate for the fact that alcohol is a sedative for the nerves and the two tend to cancel each other out. It's like if alcohol um, puts your foot on the brake, your body compensates by putting the foot on the gas. And then if you try to stop drinking, you have a rebound effect where the excitatory neurotransmitters are hyperactive and a person feels anxious, goes through withdrawal. So a person has to keep drinking just to sort of stay at the same spot. Yeah. Like one of the things I've realized in the almost eight years without alcohol now coming up in just a a week or two here, actually, um, is I don't like to feel (laughs) that's like a big one when you were going down, you know, you mentioned a couple of things on why people might drink. And that was a big one for me. Like I, I just hated feeling stuff and I still kind of have, you know, I'm still working on that actively trying to embrace feelings and be able to acknowledge stuff and like sit in how I'm feeling. So alcohol was a way to, to just escape from that. Do you see that with a lot of people too? And how do how would, you know, how do you deal with that? It's probably different for everybody. I would imagine. Yeah, I've seen it actually go both ways. Some people don't feel when they're sober and they use alcohol as a way of expressing feelings so that they get angry or sad when they drink. And other people like to use alcohol to cope with unpleasant feelings. Yeah. And so that's sort of a different mechanism of how people can get addicted because it may work temporarily, but over time it begins to become less effective and you need more and more of it to get the same effect. Yeah. Um, I've read some, I mentioned this to you before we started as well, read some of Stanton Peel's work. I, I've read most of the disease, the diseasing of America. And then I have this, this is the newest one I, I got not too long mm-hmm. ago, the seven tools to beat addiction. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask you is, is Stan Peel talks a lot about, um, 
a, a basic question that he would ask in some of the, um, uh, speaking engagements, he'd have a room full of, full of people in there. And this goes back to even my aunt who was a 20 plus year heroin user. She finally kicked heroin. She got, you know, clean and sober. Um, she continued to smoke cigarettes for years after that. And she told me that she was actually on one of the very first podcasts we did when I first started sober guy. And she said on that podcast that quitting cigarettes was harder than quitting heroin. And so back to this, this question that he asks, uh, Stanton Peel asks in this group is how many of you smoked in, in, in the audience, you know, in the, in the audience and, and, you know, a lot of hands go up and he says, well, how many of you quit? And most of the hands go down. And he says, how many of you went to treatment to quit cigarettes? And nobody's hand goes up. So there, there's some thought. And I, I don't I don't know what's right, what's wrong. I'm not trying to, I'm just, I think this is a great conversation and something to think about. How does that relate to the difference between someone getting sober from 12 step and why it, it works for some people. It doesn't work for others. Like I, I mean, I, I don't even know what the question is per se, but let me just hear your thoughts on that, on that little, uh, you know, little study or little experiment alone. Sure. Yeah. I, it's important to understand what addiction is. Okay. I mean, it's defined in the DSM five through a variety of criteria that mostly reflect consequences associated with addiction. So it really doesn't get at what addiction is. For me, fundamentally, addiction is when you do something or take a drug, it increases the motivation to use more of it. Got it. So, for example, we're not born with a need to drink alcohol or to use opiates. We're born with needs for water, for food, for sex. And so those biological needs are inborn. But when it comes to addictive substances, it's something that is acquired over time. So using it increases the need to do more of it. Now, I don't have a history of being addicted to alcohol or opiates, but I sort of know what it, the feeling is like in terms of my addiction to uh, corn chips. So right now um, in, the, in my kitchen, I have a, a big bag of corn chips that when I start eating the corn chips, I can't stop. And so you know, I'm trying to watch my weight a little bit. So I, I try and put criteria on it, but the only way I can deal with it is by moving the corn chips out of sight. And uh, if I do that, then I don't think about using it and my craving is low. But if I have a couple of corn chips, I need to keep eating them. And that's the way it is with addiction. So when it comes to cigarette smoking or other addictions, it's possible to break that addictive cycle by removing yourself, by removing access to that substance, yeah. and then you break the cycle. But you're still at risk that if you then were to go back and use even a little bit, it create need to have to use more and more of it, and you're back into that addictive cycle. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. As you just were finishing that up, I just recalled something myself. So I did a 30-day treatment program mm -hmm. back in 2013, and I did 12-step, still continue to work 12-step. But I actually quit cigarettes two weeks in, to in my treatment, I haven't smoked a cigarette since. It's been almost eight yeah. years. But I haven't done 12 step for cigarettes. I just quit. But I do 12 step for alcohol, for, you know, other. So there, there's just some conflicting thoughts sometimes that really I, I wonder about. You know, I wonder is addiction, is alcoholism a disease? You know, I don't know if that's, I mean, I, that's a very controversial question. I don't know if you want to tackle it or, or jump on it a little bit, but I know I've questioned it quite a bit. Yeah. So 
It's, it's a really a great question. And <clears throat> it's a disease or disorder like other disorders, like having uh, high blood pressure, diabetes, or, or anxiety, or depression, that um, really addiction reflects the relationship you have with some activity or some substance. And over time, that relationship can cause problems. So for alcohol, it can cause problems with your liver, with your gastrointestinal tract, with your nerves, virtually every organ in the body. Yeah. And so that relationship can lead to physical diseases. It can also lead to mental disorders as well. So it's important to look at that relationship that you have. If you have high blood glucose by itself, it's, it's not an issue, but over time that can cause cardiovascular symptoms. Mm. And so it's important to look at an early stage if your relationship with something uh, can lead to problems. And, and that's where sort of the moderation comes in, that if you can look at your relationship with alcohol before you get impaired relationships with a partner, uh, difficulty with your work, um, uh, organ system uh, damages, you may be able to moderate your use of alcohol before it becomes a major problem. So I, I think that's a great uh, lead into this next question. Why does moderation work better for some people um, than complete sobriety? And how come some people can only do sobriety? They can't moderate. Yeah. So, so moderation is particularly helpful for people, say, in the early stages of addiction or even before they, they show the full effects of an alcohol use disorder. That um, recent data suggests that um, people, the general population is probably drinking too much. And so the recommendation is that for men shouldn't have more than two drinks in a day and for women, not more than one drink in a day. And so if you find yourself as a female drinking more than eight drinks in a week or for a guy more than 15 drinks in a week, it's important to look at your relationship with alcohol. Now, some people are not addicted, but they're just drinking a lot. Yeah. And then if you show them the data and, and the adverse consequences that can occur, they just cut back on their drinking. And maybe with the help of uh, some social support, they're able to do that. And, and But for other people, that's not enough and they need additional help. Yeah. In the last two weeks alone, I think I've had three different men reach out to me and say, Hey, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm tired of drinking. I want to quit. I, I, I either don't want to go to a 12 step program or I've tried it and I didn't like it. And you know, they have their own reasons why now I just being from my own background and just my experience, I always share meetings with, with people and I always continue to do that. But at the same time, I never push it on anybody. So I'm always looking for options to serve other people and help them in whatever path they want to go down and try to support the best I can in that. It's not about being right. It's just about getting the help that people need. So what options are there for um, people who, you know, like those three dudes in the last two weeks who've reached mm -hmm. out who maybe don't want to do a 12 step program or they're trying to figure it out. They're trying to look for alternative ways. Yeah. So it, for example, in our clinical program, <clears throat> we offer help for people who, um, maybe are ambivalent about giving up drinking completely. And rather than turn them away and say, well, come back when you're ready. I prefer to hit people before they, they go to rock bottom. Some people don't recover from rock bottom. Yeah, so I'll work true. together with them. Yeah. And part of the working together with them might include um, a suggestion that 
well, you know, binges are bad. And the person says, yeah, I notice when I binge, I feel crappy the next day. I, you know, my wife is upset with me. Uh, you know, maybe I should get rid of the binges. So I'll say, okay, so for the next week or two, let's agree that you won't have any binges. So you can still drink, but no binges. Yeah. And then if they come back and they say, well, uh, I took your advice. I didn't have any binges and I feel better. Great. If they were not able to do that, then we take it to the next step. Say, well, if you weren't able to control your binges, maybe we need to add something to that. Maybe some of that naltrexone can help that one drink not turn into five drinks. Mm. Maybe we need some additional support to help you with that. And, and so meeting people where they are helps get people engaged in treatment. And as a, as a physician, I see that as part of my responsibility to get people engaged in treatment. Now, of course, I don't keep people where they're at if they're in a bad place. I like to, to move them along to get better. So typically, our program would include a combination of medicines and psychosocial support. And the psychosocial support often includes going to meetings. So I fully encourage people to do that. Yeah. For me, recovery is more than just if you're drinking or not. Recovery is that your life is better. You feel better about yourself. You have some purpose in life, good relationships. And I think a lot of the support in the 12-step uh, groups often helps provide that for people. They have a camaraderie. Yep. They, they, they feel okay about themselves. And so that's very important in terms of long-term recovery. So you asked me earlier yeah. about when should people stop taking naltrexone? And I would say when those things are in place. Yeah. When they have some purpose in life, some good relationships, that's probably the, the most important thing for long-term sobriety. Yeah, I, I'm glad you pointed that out about just the fellowship community part. I think that's been the biggest part for me and, and a lot of other of my friends that I talk to that are sober and, and in recovery is having that support group of um, other, especially for me, other men out there who are, who have mm. gone through some of the similar stuff. We have that connection. We might be from different backgrounds, have different views on stuff, you know, but it, we have this one thing in common that we can share and we can help support each other in. And so, you know, there's different opinions about things, maybe even inside a 12 step program, but at the end of the day, having that support there, um, I know for me has, has just been absolutely huge. So when you, when you're working with somebody and they're trying naltrexone, like what is, can you, like what does that look like for them? Are they doing therapy too? Are they doing counseling? Is it, is, do, do they get to choose what they want to do, what works best for them? Or, or what do you recommend? Yeah. So one of the things I developed was a psychosocial approach to help engage people in treatment. And we call it the Brenda approach. And that stands for the various stages of how we uh, work with people. So we look to see what their biopsychosocial consequences of drinking are. We give people a report in terms of how their drinking is affecting their health and well-being. The E part of Brenda is empathy. We try to understand the person's perspective and what's important for them. And from that, we develop uh, what the patient's needs are, what are their goals for treatment. And when you do that and then give direct advice, that's the D part of Brenda, people are more willing to listen to you and to accept your advice. But then the A part of Brenda is we assess the response to the direct advice. Are people ready to change? Some people are ready to change. Other people are thinking about it. And some people think, no, I, I, I don't have a problem. I'm, I'm not there yet. Yeah. And so depending on people's readiness to change, we, we change how we address those folks. So if people think that they don't have a problem, we, we ask them, 
well, maybe consider that you have a problem. If people are considering that they have a problem, we get them to move the next stage to let's take some steps to get better. And so we move people along. So in our program, we combine the psychosocial therapy with the medications. And we find that gives you the best chance of having a, a full and sustained recovery. Yeah. I, I wanted to, um, I wanted to, to ask you, and you, you mentioned this, um, I think it went, when we first started or it came up at some point about, you know, everything that's going on right now, a lot of high stress out there, a lot of mental health issues. We're seeing a lot of people either turn back to drugs and alcohol or even those who never really abused the, the drugs or alcohol before are turning to it as a way to cope with all the shit that's going on right now. It's yes. madness. So, and I don't even remember what the rates were, but, and, and, you know, they were a lot of people, uh, you know, going into that. Are you seeing a lot of that? And how are you, how are you helping? How can we help those out there right now who are just feeling this immense, you know, a lot of it, depression, anxiety. Um, I'll be honest, we're, we're even dealing with some of the stuff with our own daughter just from, you know, not being plugged into school. The normalcy is not yeah. there. It, like she's waiting for life to go back to normal. And I, and it's so hard to tell her like, look, babe, like there's a lot of things that have changed and there's a good chance that some of this stuff might not be going back to at least anytime soon. And so it puts where, and, um, it puts stress even on parents having to deal with their kids. And I mean, gosh, there's a whole, whole mix of it. I could keep going on, but what are you seeing and uh, how are you helping folks or what advice would you have from a, a doctor's perspective on how to deal and, and cope with some of the stuff we're seeing today? Well, you're absolutely right. Uh, they've estimated that a third of the country right now is either anxious or depressed or both. And so it's a very serious issue. And clearly the use of alcohol has gone up uh, during the pandemic and the number of overdose deaths from um, opioids has dramatically gone up over the past year. So people have lost the connection. They lost that personal connection, which is a very useful support to buffer against stress. You mentioned the, uh, the red park at the beginning. Uh, So the, the purpose of that was to show how the psychosocial support and, and connection with other organisms helps to reduce stress and, and drug use. And, and clearly it's the case in human beings that when you have, support from other people that that acts as a buffer and people have lost that buffer. And uh, a lot of people have turned to using drugs and alcohol as a way of coping with anxiety and depression. And, and part of the problem right now is that it's even hard to access professional help. Yes, I know in my own family, yep. uh, a family member has been trying to connect with a therapist and is on a waiting list and won't be able to see someone until October. And so that's, yep. that's a real serious issue. And, and that's partly why it uh, leads me sort of to the next thing that I'm doing research on, which is this idea of digital therapeutics, which is a way of providing that psychosocial support, you know, independent of seeing someone personally. And so that can help fill some of that void. Yeah. Yeah. We, we've experienced the same. Um, it's my, my wife had reached out um, just in, in trying to get some advice and seek some, um, some help on, on dealing with some of the stuff and especially with, you know, having kids right now and all, the whole thing and same thing. Um, there was no openings, you know, there yes. was no openings and we, we've done a ton of, we've done marriage counseling. We, it's never been an issue before, but in the last year it's extremely tough. And so, you know, that you might not be able to get in to see somebody. And then before you know it, you're, you're back out there. 
um, you know, reaching for some sort of substance to, to help cure the, at least temporary cure the, uh, the stuff. It's almost like too, it's almost like the effects of everything that we have seen are worse than the actual thing itself. I would say <laughs> to some extent. Um, and I know that's another hot topic, a lot of different opinions on it and, and different, uh, um, different thoughts, but you know, the amount of people struggling with mental health and with, um, you know, families and kids, it, it just seems astronomically large compared to some of the other things that, um, you know, that, that we're seeing right now. So I hope people can, you know, help educate themselves and help get some help that they need to. And I, I mean, obviously you have, you, where's your practice again, by the way, it's in Pennsylvania. Yeah. So it's in uh, outside of Philadelphia in Plymouth meeting, Pennsylvania. Okay. Got it. Um, and do you, well, I guess there's different, um, uh, different ways uh, that you can connect through tele telehealth or digital, or I don't know what that looks like, but we'll be sure to give your uh, information out at the end of the podcast, just so folks can reach out if they, if they'd like to do that. Um, anything I'm missing today, man? I mean, it's been a great conversation. I know we kind of shifted gears a little bit back and forth, but is there anything in particular you want to jump on right now and, and, and maybe bring up or dive into a little bit? Yeah. So again, one of the, the new things that we're working on is this whole idea of digital health, which is to sort of address that unmet need. And yeah. the digital therapeutics is something that if you haven't heard about, you're likely to hear a lot more about in the future. Yeah. And these are uh, you know computer programs that you access on the internet. And uh, they've been used to treat a variety of disorders, including uh, uh, diabetes or physical disorders. They've been used to treat uh, insomnia, uh, anxiety disorders, uh, depression. And so there's a program called Verbita to help with uh, alcohol problems, to help people learn to moderate. And one of the things I like about digital therapeutics, I'm still a, a scientist at heart. So I like to see data that something actually works. Yeah. And so they've done research with this uh, digital therapeutic, and it actually does reduce the number of binges and overall alcohol drinking. Mm-hmm. So these these can be helpful adjuncts to help people uh, in the recovery. So if you couple that, you know, some of the more data driven, um, science backed uh, solutions to uh, to quitting drinking, how do you? How do you roll in the some of the trauma-based stuff in that? Because that's one thing I've heard a lot about. A friend of mine, TJ Woodward, talks a lot about that. He he does conscious recovery. And so they a lot of it, we talk about trauma-based stuff from his kids. Like I had a jacked up childhood. Like it was a lot of stress, high stress. I, I The best way I describe it is controlled chaos. So there was love there, but it was just, it was insane some days. And so I think I carried a lot of that into my adulthood, which led to the not you know, not wanting to feel and down the line. I don't, I don't know. I don't have it all figured out by any means. I'm still learning along the way, but how do you, how do you kind of couple those two together? Or, I mean. No, absolutely. I, that's all very relevant. I, I remember doing research with young rats. They were, they were uh, like juvenile rats where we gave them either control over stress or no control or, or no stress at all. And then later we tested them. And what we found is that the rats who um, had experience with lack of control, they tended to be more vulnerable to ulcers, depression, anxiety. Um, they, they did very poorly. And the rats that had experience with trauma but had some measure of control were actually um, more able to deal with trauma later in life. And so 
it's the, this notion of not being able to control things that's really critical. And so one of the things I do working with patients is I try to give people a, a sense of control so that they don't feel like they're victims, that everything is happening to them all the time. And that's very easy to do when you're a child and you really don't have so much control over the chaos going on around you. You can learn some very bad lessons about uh, your ability to control things in life. And so yeah. that's one of the things that we, we stress in our, our treatment to give people some measure and sense of responsibility and control. And uh, I think that helps buffer them against further trauma. Yeah, I love that. It's almost like we have a pandemic of victimhood sometimes. <laughs> that was a big struggle, yeah. you know? Yeah, go ahead. Go learned, ahead. learned helplessness. Yeah. Just learned. people feel that there's nothing they can do. Everything is happening to them. Mm -hmm. It's out of their control. And that's a really unhealthy state to be in. Yeah. Uh, the, the opposite, uh, mastery or, or grittiness, we call it, that, that's where you, you, you're, you confront trauma, you confront stresses and challenges, but you learn to deal with them and overcome them. And that's what yeah. builds up true self-esteem mm -hmm. and, and a sense of uh, wellness. Yeah. I love that. You just reminded me of a counselor I had in treatment, James Cantor. And we'd say in a group, he'd say, and how do we build self-esteem? And everyone would say, by doing esteemable acts. Perfect. <laughs> I haven't that's heard that perfect. in a while, but it works. You know? Ser service and helping others and trying to, I mean, that's part of the biggest reasons I do the podcast week. It's not just because I think I know everything and I'm smart. I'm really not. I just love being up here and talking to people, hearing people stories and um, trying to be of service, I guess, not really does help to keep me sober in the process. There's accountability. There's a passion behind it. Um, you know, so esteemable acts and building self-esteem, such a big, a big part of it. Yeah. I, yeah, I agree with you a hundred percent. And, and it's not just a way to recover from, addiction but it's a good way to live your life in general yeah absolutely to, to be connected with other human beings there's so much division right now and yeah and even the addiction field it's it's upsetting that sometimes people who come from a, say a 12-step tradition don't believe in the medications or people who are prescribing medications don't support the 12-step program yeah. and it, it's very disappointing to me that we don't work together i mean in yeah. in my toolbox i have a phillips head screwdriver and a flathead screwdriver and you know they're both screwdrivers but yeah. sometimes you use one tool versus the other yeah and, what's wrong with that and here's the best part about that dr fulpicelli you have the freedom to choose yes <laughs> you have the freedom to choose which one you want to use and i think when we get back to that because it's so relevant what you just said it everything is different for everybody but we have to we have to possess the freedom to, to make, and sometimes we don't always choose the right thing, but that's like learning life, man. Sometimes we trip and fall, but we got to get our asses back up, erase the victim BS, you know, and let's keep that open option on the table to learn, to do better, stay teachable, um, and, and, and keep the freedom to choose in whatever it is as men, as women in a great free country. You know what I mean? I, I love that. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, as a, as a scientist, I'm used to doing experiments where the results don't come out as I expect, <laughs> but I still learn something from each experiment. Yeah. What's that? I used to say to my research assistant, well, rat didn't do what he, we thought he would do, but the rat is always right. It's given us important data. And, yeah. and when, when, when I work with patients, sometimes there's a bad outcome for a while, yeah. but we learn from that and move on without judgment, without blaming anyone for a bad outcome. But what can we learn from it? And then yeah. we move forward. That's good. 
That's good. Is there is there one uh, experiment that might stand out that didn't turn out your way that that you can recall? <laughs> oh, there's there's many, but uh, let me give you a clinical example okay. of uh, something that didn't turn out the way I thought. I I remember as a um, as a again a young medical student, I was pretty full of myself that I was an MD PhD. I had this scholarship and. I was presenting uh, to my attending and the residents about this patient who was in alcohol withdrawal. And I said, we have him on the right medicines and aren't I doing pretty, pretty well with this? And I turned to the patient and asked him how he was doing. And the patient turned around and pull cocked me. Oh, shit. Really? <laughs> yes. Dang. <laughs> and just every once in a while, God reminds me that uh, where I am in the universe. And uh, wow. Now, the person afterwards apologized, and when he came came around, he, he's a completely different person. But sometimes you just have to re- be reminded uh, that you don't have all the answers, and, yeah, and maybe good. you're not all that at times. So That's good. I love it. Thank you for that. That's a, that's a great reminder. Good stuff. Well, if folks wanted to reach out, if they want to get more information, um, I know we'll make sure we put all of those uh, links uh, to anything we talk about mm-hmm. today in the show notes. I know that um, uh, that you guys offered up a coupon code um, if you uh, wanted to try. I don't know if it was specifically the program. I'll, I'll let you kind of uh, uh, describe a little bit more about how you can help and how folks can reach you. Yeah, so I'm working a little bit with the company that makes Orvita, and I know they wanted to to get it into the hands of people as much as possible so people can try it and, and see how it works. So I think if you go to vorvita.com, you can get more information about this digital therapeutic. And and I think they even have a code to, to get uh, some percent off if, if you uh, buy yeah, the program. I think it was 40% off and I have the promo code. I'll put that in the show notes for anybody who wants to check it out. That sounds great. And then you're at... Uh, uh, VolpicelliCenter.com. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. So that's our uh, clinical program. And then we have a, a research program, a research teaching program called Institute Addiction Medicine, uh, dot org, I believe it is dot org. So people can, you can always Google Joseph Volpicelli and uh, I'm sure you'll see uh, a lot of our research and clinical programs. Last question for you before we wrap up, doctor, if there's anyone struggling out there, Right now, that's listening to this, um, they're not really sure what to do. They don't know where to go. Um, what advice could you give them? There's there's hope out there. I, I want to let people know that you can get better. I, I know a lot of times when I give uh, these sort of talks that someone will come up to me and say, you know, my father is still actively drinking and uh, I can't really get him into treatment. And uh, he doesn't believe that there's any cure for him and, and let them know that there's various options. And um, in our program, we have a pretty good success rate, you know, by combining the medicine with the psychosocial support to help people get better. And now we even have digital psychosocial support as another option. It helps remove some of the stigma. The digital support is available anytime, anywhere you can get an internet connection. So there's, there's no excuse anymore to not get that support and to, and take advantage of um, your support group and, uh, that includes meetings, that includes family, but people can get better and they do get better. So don't give up. I've, I've worked with people in their 70s and 80s who, after a lifetime of drinking, they were able to quit and, and turn things around. Wow. So there's hope. Love it. There's always hope. Don't give up. You only lose when you quit. So yeah. you got to keep going. 
Um, Dr. Volpicelli, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today, talking to us. Really appreciate you, man. Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure being here. You can check it out at www.volpicellicenter.com. Once again, all the links today will be in the show notes. Thanks so much for joining us. You can follow us on Instagram at that sober guy podcast. Join us on the locals sober guy community. Love you guys. Peace, love and respect. Keep your blood clean.